You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Last week, we began looking at the story of the rich young ruler from Mark chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn back there. Uh, The story last week revealed the heart of this man. He is a man who urgently came to Jesus, sincerely came to Jesus, even humbly came to Jesus, and he asked this important question. Good master, what eternal life? So the man approached the right person with the right attitude and asked the right question. And Jesus' response shocked not only the man, but the crowd watching. And I think in some ways it shocks us as well. First, he points to the law and he says, have you kept these five commandments? The man says, yes, I've done my best. Since I was a child, I've kept those commandments. So the man claims Jesus, rather than commending him for how good he's been, points to the 10th commandment. And he tells the man to take his possessions, to sell them all and to give the money to the poor. And then to take up his cross and follow him. And what Jesus is doing here is he's diagnosing the man's sin. He's pointing to his idol and he's revealing his heart. This man, from outward appearances, seems very good. He's very pious. He's very religious. He's got a lot of good things going for him. But nobody else sees his heart except Jesus. And so Jesus points out that thing that is an idol in his life. And he tells them, if you're not willing to repent of that, you can't enter my kingdom. See, this man doesn't yet know that he needs a savior. And that's his real problem. And so the man then leaves, his heart heavy, but his hands still full. The Bible says he went away grieved because he had great possessions. And what we find is that rather than possessing riches, his riches had possessed him. And so despite his outward piety, materialism occupied the place of God in his heart. And the disciples are mystified. They're bewildered. Surely, if any person is fit for the kingdom of God, it had to be this man. And if not this man, then who could possibly ever go to heaven? Jesus reveals to them that riches, rather than always a sign of God's blessing is actually often a barrier to salvation. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What he's saying there is that it's impossible. It is absolutely impossible for a rich person to come to the kingdom of God. But then he gives us some hope that that which is impossible with man is possible with God. Because the salvation that is absolutely impossible by ourselves is made possible by the Spirit of God. And so last week we learned that no person, if anybody ever could, it was this man. If he couldn't, you can't. I can't. All people are sinners and we all need to be saved. Possible with man is made possible by God. And we find that Jesus will save all those 
who will repent of their sin and turn in faith to him. This week, I want to continue looking at the same story, but from a different perspective. Last week, our focus was on the rich young ruler. This week, I want to look at the disciples of Jesus and the conversation that they had following this encounter. And we're going to answer, hopefully, this essential question. What does Jesus mean when he says, sell all that you have, take up your cross, and follow me? Or more concisely, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? So we'll be looking at Mark, beginning chapter 10, verse number 28. Then Peter began to say to him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. So you can imagine what is happening here. That Peter has seen this take place. That this man has come running to Jesus, excited to meet him, kneels before him, asks him the question. But when he finds the answer and he doesn't like the answer, and he maybe sees his own sin, rather than running, he slouches away sad, heavy hearted. And so the disciples are, are bewildered. They ask questions. And then something clicks in Peter's mind. Peter realizes that Jesus said this man would have treasures in heaven if he left all he had. And he had left everything, right? He and the disciples had left everything. So the problem with Peter is he can't just have a thought. Everything that he thinks comes out of his mouth, right? And so he says, Lo, hey, Jesus. We've left everything. What about us? In fact, in Matthew, he actually asks the question, what do we get? And so Jesus responds, and he responds pretty seriously. Jesus, in verse 29, answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel. One hundredfold now in this time, houses brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. So Jesus takes Peter's question seriously and he tells Peter and the disciples about the rewards that they have for following Jesus. Those who have left, they have forsaken. And he gives this list. It says your house, your siblings, your parents, your wife, your children, your land. You've, if you've left those things for my sake or for the Gospels, you will receive 100 times that now and eternal life in the world to come. But you also receive persecution. With that comes persecution. And, and we see this and, and it seems like a fairly simple answer. This is what you gave up. Times that by 100, this is what you get. The problem is I don't think it's that simple. And so what I want to do with our time today is try and figure out first what Jesus expects of his followers, what, what his demands are of those who follow him, and then see what kind of reward he is offering to those who do follow him. I want to look at this from like kind of a little view, and that might sound strange, but it sounds strange to put peanut butter on your pancakes and it's still awesome. <laughs> if you've never tried it, you ought to. And so hopefully this will be helpful as well. 
So what I want to do is I'll, I want to look at the proposal, the terms and conditions, and then the compensation and rewards. The proposal is that this man comes to Jesus and he asks this very simple question. How do I enter the kingdom of God? This is my goal, Jesus. What do I have to do to make that happen? My goal is heaven. Jesus gives some terms and conditions. Requirement number one, be moral to your neighbor. I haven't forgotten the gospel, but that's, that is how Jesus begins. He points to the law and he says, you got to be good. You got to be a good neighbor. And what Jesus is doing here is he's setting this man up to see his sin. Because really that's step one is recognize your need for salvation. And Jesus is just bringing him to that first step by pointing at the law. So having the man express the fact that he thinks himself to be righteous before he reveals step number two, he is not righteous. He says, sell your possessions, take up your cross and follow me. So now he points to the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. And he reveals the man's heart. And the man here says, can't do it. I will not sell my things. I will not give up that idol. And so the deal is not done. And in this man's case, story's over. At least for them. Now this is, I think, where it gets tricky because... We don't find any other place in the Bible that tells us that if we will sell everything we have, give it to the poor, and follow Jesus, that's how you get to heaven. There's no command to sell everything. So, what part of this might apply to us? As we read and study the story, it's clear that Jesus is telling the man to let go of his possessions because these possessions were the idol in his life. It was his sin. He loved his stuff. He had to keep his stuff. It made him feel secure. It gave him identity. It was the source of his joy. He would give up anything else, but don't touch his stuff. Well, that is an idol. And I don't think that Jesus is giving general advice to all people here when he says, sell your stuff. I think this is appropriate advice in this instance, because what he's teaching us is that you're not able to really come to Jesus carrying. It's not like I can be like, hey, Jesus, I know I'm all of these awful things, but I still want to put my faith in you. I'm a sinner and I'm repenting of my sin and turning to you for salvation. If there's no repentance, there's no laying down of in our lives, how do we a new God? How, how can Jesus be our God while we're holding on to the of our sin before we put our faith in? Everyone here has this exact problem. All of us have broken the law. There's nobody here that could ever come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I was morally perfect. I've got number five to nine and number 10 and number one to four, got it all covered. All of us have sinned and we all repent. Now here in this story, Jesus terms repent and believe. And elsewhere in scripture, if the, the question is asked, how can I be saved? The answer is usually along the lines of repent and believe, but I think even in this story, though he does not use, he does say as much, just in different words. 
And so here are the terms and conditions for everyone. Repent. Put down your sin. Turn from salvation. That's not what Jesus calls this man to. He calls him to repent, to follow him. He says, sell and follow, empty your hands, pick up your cross, repent. It begins at conversion, but it does not end there. Being a disciple of Jesus means that we're to have left everything and followed him. And so I think at this point, it's good for us to reflect upon ourselves. Did we really repent? Did we really let go of what was in our hands to follow Jesus? Did we really believe? Did we really pick up our cross and follow him? I'm fearful that far too many people who believe themselves to be Christians have just, in fact, joined a new club or added a new hobby. Jesus fit within a moral framework they liked. He fit within their political ideal, ideals. And so they figured they may as well jump on the bandwagon. This is not a bandwagon. It's not a club. This command to believe is to drop what you have, pick up your cross, and to follow Jesus. The cross was symbolic of death by torture. And so this meant giving up everything and taking upon a cross. Now, I got to say, if, if Christianity is simply adding Jesus to your life, but it also demands taking up this cross and following him, it doesn't seem like a good deal. If it's just like, I'm going to add this new little thing to my life, but it's also going to cost me everything. I don't know that that's worth it, but it's not that. Christianity following Jesus is meant to be our lives. It's meant to be everything. It's meant to be, I've dropped, I, I'm giving up, but everything that I have is now yours. I am yours and I will follow you for the rest of my life. So why would we do such a thing? If becoming a Christian is so costly, if it means giving up our lives to follow him, why would anybody do it? How could Jesus ask this rich man for so much and expect him to listen? And what is so great about following Jesus anyway? Well, we have Peter to thank for the fact that we have an answer to this question. Because Jesus, Peter said, hey, Jesus, we left everything. We followed you. What do we get? And here we find the compensation and rewards promised for those who follow Jesus. And, and I want to say, as Jesus gives this list, he says, you're going to get 100 times all of these things. If we attempt to take this answer literally, I think it's pretty ridiculous. I think it doesn't make any sense to say, if you have forsaken a house, you're going to get 100 houses this side of heaven. If you have forsaken brothers and sisters, you get 100. Now, I, I can see that we, we talk about the church family and we have brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he is added to our family in that very real way. I notice, though, that he doesn't mention you get a hundred more fathers. Maybe that's because God is your father. Um, maybe it's because Jesus isn't trying to be really specific in the list. He does say, however, you'll get a hundred more mothers. 
And I love my mom, but I'm not sure I want 100 more. <laughs> right? Now, he doesn't mention that you'll get 100 wives, and so some of you are happy about that. Um, but then I thought, how about those like single children who don't have a house, who don't have lands, who don't have a wife, who don't have brothers and sisters, like all they get is 100 more moms. <laughs> it's kind of sad for those people. Uh, and so obviously this is not meant to be taken literally. It's not like, you know, you get a hundred times all of these things exactly. But I think this promise still has great meaning. The way that Luke records it in Luke 18.30 says that these people shall receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come life everlasting. And the way I read that and the way I read what Mark is saying here is that your life will be full. You will add to your life this church family. You will add to your life the fact that you're part of the universal body of Christ. You'll add to your life the fact that you have God in heaven as your heavenly father, that you have an inheritance with Jesus forever, that he goes with you all the time, that the spirit of God lives in you. There's so many things that are added to your life. And so you get it all and more. Your family becomes sweeter and richer and fuller. I mean, so many of us, when we're trying to do life by ourselves, we're just struggling through it. And now we have God's help and God's power. And that's a wonderful thing. And so the promise here is meaningful, even for this side of heaven. I think it's important to notice that Jesus is not saying, if you follow me, your life will be absolutely miserable. That's not his plan for us, right? His plan is to give us life and life more abundantly. It doesn't mean... Life is always easy. In fact, Jesus is always very honest. There is a cost to following him. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. He says, sell your stuff and follow me. He says, even in, in this aspect, when he's talking about the rewards of following him, in verse 30, he says, with persecutions. So you'll receive all these things a hundredfold, but understand that life is not always going to be easy. There will be persecution. There will be trouble and difficulty that you, that you have to go through. Jesus is honest about our sin. He's honest about the solution. He's honest about the rewards and he's honest about the difficulty. He's not trying to hold anything back. And then here in this story, Matthew and Mark both conclude with something that Jesus said. And actually Luke doesn't record this statement here, but he records the same statement elsewhere. And Matthew records it in a couple other places. So this statement that he's about to give is something that's recorded many times throughout scripture. And it's almost like a mantra for what it is to live in the kingdom. Here he says in verse 31, the first shall be last and the last first. There's some debate among theologians whether Jesus is speaking about this circumstance as a whole, that the first shall be last, meaning the rich young ruler who had everything in this life shall be last, and the last, meaning Peter and the disciples, will be first. That's possible, and it's, it, it could be part of what he's saying. But I think that this also can apply to those who are in the kingdom. That those who are first, those who are up front, those who you see actively serving are sometimes those, and he says many who are, so some, it's not always, but many who are first, they'll be last. Isn't it going to be weird that when we get to heaven, 
That the way that God sorts all things out won't be the way that we see, that, that makes sense to us. Right? When we get to heaven, those who are last, those who maybe are really quiet and shy, but they pray and they love Jesus and they love people quietly and they serve quietly and you don't see them up at the front all the time, those are the ones who will be first. I think it's a wonderful thing. God knows our hearts. Do you realize that? That he knows everything that you do and everything that you say for his kingdom. He knows our motivations. And so we can serve him and know that he sees all things. I don't want to conclude our service today without making sure that we know that there's an invitation here for us. Jesus invites all those who seek eternal life to repent of their sin and to believe the gospel. He literally says, come and follow me. And this command, this invitation to follow him is for people today. But this story reminds us that Christianity does not begin with us improving ourselves. So we're good enough to merit God's love. We're good enough to come and be kind of like church people. This invitation begins with Jesus pursuing us while we are knee deep in our sin. It begins with us, with Jesus inviting those who are completely sinful, imperfect. And he invites us not to be perfect, but but to be forgiven. He invites us to follow him. And so I want us to know this invitation is for us today. I also want to remind all of those of us who follow Jesus, who are believers in Christ, what we got ourselves into. We put our lives in his hands. We picked up a cross and we followed him. It was not simply a prayer that we prayed and then it was done. It was not simply eternal life insurance. We are called to lose our lives. We are called to take up our cross and to follow him. And so, maybe it's a good time for believers in Christ to look at their lives and say, Lord, am I still carrying my cross? Or did I set it down somewhere along the way? Am I still following you wholeheartedly? Are you still the most important preeminent thing in my life? We ought to be following Jesus the way he's called us to and the way that he deserves. He deserves to be followed wholeheartedly, passionately, and completely. The world around us, we see a cultural Christianity that just, it's not the way the Bible describes Christianity to be. And I think this story and the way that Jesus describes what repentance and faith looks like helps us understand what Christianity is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a laying down of our lives so that he can give us new life. It's supposed to be him first in our life, that that the aim and the goal of our lives becomes the glory of God for the rest of our lives until finally we get to spend eternity with him. That's what Christianity is supposed to be. So I, I would encourage you not to look at our world, look at the culture, and look at most churches and say, hey, this is what Christianity is. I'd encourage you to get into the Bible, to see what Jesus really taught, 
to see what he's called us to. Because here's the truth. When we are willing to give up those things and really follow him the way we're supposed to, that's when we find him making all the rest of it so much more wonderful. When we seek our joy in him and our purpose in him and everything that he's supposed to be, then all those things find their rightful place and they become fuller and sweeter. And so, Christian, follow Jesus with everything you've got. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this um, story of Lord, Lord's um, speaking to a man and showing him what it looks like to truly follow Jesus. And God, I pray that you'd help us to um, examine our lives. Lord, if there's someone here today and they don't know you, um, but they know that they need you, Lord, I pray that you would show them the love that was displayed by Christ on the cross for them, that he took their place, he paid for their sin, so that they could be with them forever. And Lord, I pray that you'd be willing to repent of that sin and put sin and put their faith in him for salvation. And God, for those of us who know you, Lord, I pray we would just be reminded this morning that we serve a God who is deserving of everything and we ought to give you everything. And and Lord, when we repented and put our faith in you, we did. We followed you. And so God, I pray we would follow you well. We thank you, Lord, for loving us and thank you for all that you do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.